The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So, we've had a couple of people come on here to discuss how the New York Times got online, but the spiritual yin to the Times' yang is the Wall Street Journal, of course, and we haven't done enough to explore their path to embracing the Internet. And it's worth doing that because the Journal embraced a different model from basically day one, almost alone among the web media pioneers, the journal went the subscription route. So today we're going to talk to Rich Jaroslawski, who headed the team that brought the journal online, to see why they went that route, to learn about the path to the web, and much more. So much more, in fact, that this is another one I'm going to split into two episodes, not just because we had to, for scheduling reasons, do this in two different recording sessions, and not just because... Rich had so much great stuff to say that it really deserves two episodes, but because there's a deeper story in the second half of this that touches on other things we've talked about, even going back to Netscape. So please enjoy part one of a conversation with Rich Jaroslawski. Rich Jaroslawski, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, You, uh, I kind of like to start with... um, first principles a little bit you went to school i oh, i can't remember now from uh your linkedin profile was it like um political science or something like that yes i was a poli sci major at stanford at stanford in the early 70s uh yeah um how did you uh well actually before that um before you get into journalism uh just real quickly and you don't have to have a lot of detail on this but um because it's gotten to be so famous later um, and we actually might talk about this later. Um, Stanford, as a supportive place for startup culture, uh, did you witness any of that or experience any of that? Was that in place in the in the seventies when when you were in school there? It was certainly uh, coalescing at that time. And um, you know, in the years since, every time I start to get a little too impressed with my own, um, you know, great journalistic insight. Um, I remind myself that it was happening all around me for four years, and I was basically completely oblivious to it. Mm. Uh, it. It was definitely going on, but it was sort of mysterious. And um, you know, looking back on it now, I think what a what an incredible missed opportunity. Um, as I said, or as you alluded to, you um, did end up going into journalism. 
Uh, was that accidental, or what, what? What was your path to the to the Wall Street Journal? I'm I'm one of these really weird people. Um, when I was about 12 years old, I um, went to work on my junior high school newspaper up in Santa Rosa, California, uh, and um, I remember thinking quite clearly after a, a month or so of, of working on the Herbert Slater Junior High School Senator that, oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, I fell in love with journalism um, at an early age, and I've never fallen out of love with it. Is it the um, the craft of it? Is it the being a writer part of it? Um, what what What's the thing that really appeals to you? I think it's the craft. It's the craft of it. It is, um, you know, like like many journalists, I'm kind of an introvert masquerading as an extrovert. And I think journalism has always given me a socially acceptable um, uh, reason to be curious or ask questions or um, force myself a little bit out of my comfort zone. So I fell in love with it, um, uh, you know, just immediately. And I worked on my junior high school paper and I worked on my high school paper and I was editor of the Stanford Daily. Um, and um, when I was uh, a junior in college, um, I um, got an internship working at the Wall Street Journal in New York between my junior and senior years. And I fell in love with that and was lucky enough that the journal hired me back straight out of school. So I, I got my diploma um, one week and the next week was starting at the journal in their uh, what, what was then their Cleveland Bureau. You know, I, I, I don't even mean this in any way negatively or pejoratively or anything, but it it's hard not to look at that as like the, the golden era now um, where you, you again, you, you're, you're a kid coming right out of school, you, you get an entry level position and you work your way up. And this is you're you're at The Wall Street Journal, one of the greatest newspapers in the world. And like just that that whole concept that you can build a career and again i'm not i don't think i'm being doom and gloom about media and journalism but i i'm there's no way that i can talk to you about that and and not bring up the context of like this this was the golden era this was when you could make your bones and become a beat reporter and then and then and then make a career in in journalism when it was a capital j you're you're right and you're wrong in in some ways. Um, you know, I think particularly my time at at the Journal at Dow Jones, its parent company, um, which um, uh, which was the pre-Rupert Murdoch era, um, when it was one of the mo most admired companies in the country. Um, you know, it, I feel like I was incredibly blessed and lucky um, to be at the Journal at the time I was, and to be in journalism at the time I was. Um, by the same token, there's there's a line from a Billy Joel song that goes something like, "The good old days weren't always good, and tomorrow ain't as bad as." It seems. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I kind of feel that way too. I mean, I've seen tremendous changes in the in the business, tremendous changes in journalism, but you know, the eternal verities of journalism are still valid, um, and it's still a a, um, a craft that is capable of honor. Uh, absolutely. And by the way, I probably with that question got a little ahead of ourselves. But um, so, OK, uh, Wall Street Journal, I think you started in 75. Um, 
you at, at, at some point you're you're a White House correspondent, uh, a political editor, columnist, all sorts of things. I'm I'm wondering, um, maybe what would be helpful is the context of which I've spoken to with other people, um, the experiments that were being done as early as the 70s, all throughout the 80s, into the early 90s, uh, by especially the newspaper industry, but uh, media in general, for digital media. I've spoken to other people about, um, you know, all of the various, uh, you know, Knight Ritter experiments and things like that. So I'm, if, if, again, since uh, you, you teach this sort of thing, I wonder if you could just give me um, either, either an overall context of the experiments that were being done in digital media in the 70s and 80s, or even your personal experience with some of those experiments. Well, the, uh, the overall, I mean, there was a lot of work being done. Um, and, um, you know, some of it, you look back and it was really prescient. Um, I teach a class in the history of online news at Berkeley, and we go back and look at things like uh, teletext and videotext which were early technologies, um, in some cases using, trying to use TV waves uh, to uh, deliver um, on-screen information, um, you know, and, and things like uh, the work that Roger Fiddler at Knight Ritter was doing in developing, you know, his magic screen or whatever he called it, which today you look at and go, well, that was an early iPad. Um, there was a lot of work going on at that time, and um, I was aware of it um, and, um, and sort of mildly interested in it, but it really wasn't what I was about. I was, um, for um, most of that period, I was a political journalist. As you say, I, I um, got to the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal in 1976. Uh, I got to cover politics. I got to cover um, uh, you know, the White House um, flew on Air Force One a lot, um, did all those things, um, all those sort of glamorous things, or at least they appear to be glamorous from, from a distance, about Washington journalism. And so while I was aware of all these experiments, um, they weren't super relevant to me. Um, the way that uh, my two uh, worlds collided um, was uh, a little bit more roundabout than that. Um, I inherited, I think, from my dad, a general love of gadgets and toys and things, um, electronic things, you know, calculators, whatever. Um, and um, in the um, 70s, late 70s, there was this marvelous book that came out called The Soul of a New Machine, uh, which won a Pulitzer. Tracy Kidder, yes. Tracy Kidder, exactly. Won a Pulitzer Prize. It's a great book about the, the um, you know, designing of a new mini computer at, uh, I wanna say Data General, which was a company um, around at that point. And I read the book and it's just a great piece of journalism. And, um, and I understood maybe 20% of this computer stuff, but it was really interesting. Um, and so I went out and bought myself at Toys R Us an Atari 400, which was essentially a toy computer, but a computer. And I started playing with it um, and just trying to figure out how it worked. And, um, you know, I, I would come into work every day. I was covering energy policy at that point. And my partner on the energy beat was a guy named Walt Mossberg, who I was also, wondering, yes. also had a love of gadgets. And so every morning, 
you know, I'd come in and I'd, I'd be blathering on about this this gadget and saying, well, Mossberg, you've got to go out and get one of these yourself. Um, Walt um, actually was, um, uh, you know, wasn't sure he'd get into it. So instead of spending $269 for an Atari, he bought something called the Timex Sinclair for about 59 bucks, which uh, hooked up to a black and white TV, mm -hmm. and which, by the way, he still has. Mm. Um, and um, of course, he went on to become the, the nation's preeminent technology columnist and commentator. Um, but I was um, much more interested in just, you know, learning what the technology could do. Um, and, um, you know, but for years, he and I would, you know, buy, you know, we buy, we bought our first Apple IIs together. We bought our first modems together. And um, when I got married, um, my then new wife um, said to me, you know, if you're going to keep um, buying these expensive new toys to keep up with Mossberg, you're going to have to figure out some way to pay for them. So I started writing on a freelance basis for computer magazines. And I wrote, um, for a long time, I wrote, you know, I'd, I'd cover politics, I'd, I'd, I'd um, write my political column or something, you know, uh, at the journal. And then I'd come home at night and go upstairs and play with my computer toys and write about them for magazines like A+, uh, which was an Apple II magazine, uh, Computer Shopper, which was a, a Ziff Davis magazine that used to be about the size of a phone book every month. Um, so I got comfortable with technology. Let, um, let, me, let me interrupt real quick because, again, this is uh, one thing that I've talked to other people about. This idea that we're used to there's a whole blogosphere today. There's a whole industry um, covering tech as a mainstream consumer obsession, right? Um, but in the 80s, like you're describing the magazine as a phone book, that's because essentially all of those publications were were, were industry publications, right? They weren't necessarily uh, tailored towards my mom or, or to your average consumer, right? Right. They, were, I, they weren't necessarily industry as in B2B type mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. but they were for the enthusiast. They were for the hobbyist. They were for people for whom computers and technology um, was a, you know, was a hobby um, and a passion, uh, um, not, um, not necessarily a business opportunity and not necessarily a part of somebody's everyday, an average person's everyday life. It was sort of exotic and mysterious. And when Walt and I would be talking about computers in the office, you know, our colleagues, um, you know, would sort of wander past and roll their eyes at us. You know, there, there's Walt and Rich blathering on again about bits and bytes. And, um, you know, it was, it was probably, uh, we were probably objects of, of some, uh, you know, some laughter because we were into this stuff. Um, but as it turned out, that, you know, was critically important um, into both of our careers. But at the, at the same time, uh, within the media industry, there is a digital revolution happening, happening so that uh, I'm sure, you know, when you got started, it was uh, sort of what you see in, um, 
in in black and white movies where it's all typewriters and rows and rows of desks and things like that. But you had to have been around for the digital revolution in publishing um, taking over. And I'm talking not just not in a consumer level or a mainstream level, but specifically in the journalism and, and media space. Well, the journal was was always kind of interesting because the journal had um, its production system was highly advanced for its era. Mm. The, the journal really pioneered the notion of being able to publish um, this, basically the same newspaper in multiple points around the country. Uh, they used um, microwave and then satellites to bounce images off, um, uh, you know, to, to be able to enable um, uh, publishing all over the country. But at the same time, the, the sort of front-end system, the system that the reporters and editors used, the journal was somewhat late to technology. Um, and so it, it arrived, our, our first computer terminals, which were um, these hideous um, uh, devices made by a company called Delta Data, um, uh, you know, that, that was fairly late. We could sort of see it. Um, happening at other places, but but we didn't feel it as much at the journal. Um, what was going on at a lot of other places, and and at Dow Jones too, uh, the journal's parent company. In fairness, was everybody could see that you know that there was a digital future, but nobody could quite figure out what it was. And some of those early experiments that we talked about, um, you know, a little while ago, teletext, video text. Some of those were sort of epic disasters for the companies that tried to um, tried to launch them. So you'd had a you you had on the one hand you had a vision that yes digital was going to be important and it was going to revolutionize things, but on the other hand you had a string of failed and in some cases embarrassingly failed um, experiments um, that left the, the the media industry kind of. Um, gun shy you could see the future but you you didn't know how to get there so um and if i'm skipping over anything that you think is important uh please interject right now but so bringing us up up to the 90s when there starts to be things like online services and bbs's um are you are you personally starting to see some of uh experiments and moves made in those directions yeah, well, what you had in the in the '90s, um, you know, the first part of the '90s, you had the rise of dial-up consumer online services like, um, you know, CompuServe and um, and Prodigy, and eventually, of course, AOL, um, which were more consumer friendly, um, which suffered from being, um, you know, terribly slow and you know, oftentimes because you were dialing up over phone lines. There were all sorts of disadvantages, but at least they were um, becoming, they were penetrating the consumer consciousness. Um, and uh, at Dow Jones, uh, the key guy, um, I think, um, uh, throughout, really through the history of, of WSJ.com, uh, was a, an executive in the um, electronic publishing division of Dow Jones, a guy named Neil Buddy. Um, and Neil um, had this um, idea um, that, uh, you know, that online was definitely uh, the, the wave of the future. Um, and he had an approach 
um, uh, to trying to bring the Wall Street Journal online. Now, this was probably about 1993, um, 1994, and um, um, probably, probably really 1993. Um, and at this point, the web was barely a glimmer in, uh, in most normal people's eyes. Right. And, and the big thing was AOL. And so the original vision of what became WSJ.com was a um, not a, a website. It was a dial-up internet service similar to AOL. We would give people, the idea was we would give people um, dial-up software uh, just like AOL had, and people would, you know, over their telephone lines, dial up, um, you know, uh, Dow Jones servers in South Brunswick, New Jersey, and we'd have our own online service, and that would be the online Wall Street Journal. And um, I joined the project um, at a point where there was, I think at that point, there were like four of us uh, on the entire team. Um, I got approached um, when I was in Washington. They were looking for somebody who, you know, at least wasn't terrified of the technology. And because of my background as a hobbyist and as a, a freelance writer, I was comfortable around the technology. Um, and they offered me this job um, of, of being the news guy, of being the managing editor of this non-existent online service. And, um, you know, I, when I talked it over with my wife and, and um, we decided that the, even though it was totally um, untried and, uh, and we, it was a, a, a leap into the unknown, um, but it was like too tempting to, to pass up. Uh, my colleagues in Washington were baffled. Um, I, I remember at least one of them used the phrase career suicide, um, you know, to, to describe, you know, you're going where to do what? Uh, and people at that point in the, in the print newsroom had no idea why I was doing this. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, by that point, I was national political editor in the Washington Bureau, you know, I was writing the, the Washington Wire column that ran on page one. Um, you know, I'd had a pretty well-known byline after 18 years in Washington. And my colleagues were totally baffled by why I would be doing this. But it seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up. So when I joined the project, and for the first year I was on the project, we spent the entire time you know, trying to build um, uh, a model for an online dial-up service. And, um, you know, Neil knew from the beginning sort of how it should work and what it should, what it should be. Uh, a guy named Tom Baker um, uh, joined as our chief business person. And Tom, you know, dial-up services you used to pay for. Um, and so we, from the beginning, um, assumed that we would be charging people something for this service, uh, if only because we were going to have telecommunications costs from all these people dialing up Dow Jones servers. Which I, so, I'm going to interrupt for context here. You used to have to pay, especially if you're, especially if you're calling outside your area code. You used to have to pay per minute, um, and so right, it's not just you. You turn it on and you use it uh, to your heart's content, and you pay a certain amount. It it, it was metered. Oh yeah, it was it was metered, um, you know, by the minute. Um, and when uh, AOL went to a flat subscription for all you could use, 
um, you know, the, the result was so much um, online paralysis that people were joking that uh, the name of the service wasn't America Online, it was America on hold. Mm -hmm. Um, um, so it was, it was very much, you were trying to cram an awful lot of information through a very, very small portal. Um, and, um, uh, and you know, the longer that, that people stayed online, the more expensive it got, you were tying up your telephone, which meant that nobody else could call you. Most people didn't have voicemail then. Um, so people would be, you know, you'd be online for 45 minutes and anyone who tried to call you would get a busy signal and you'd get a bill and you'd go, how much, you know, geez, I was on for 45 minutes, it's nine bucks or 10 bucks for that session. So it was, um, that was the environment that we, we started working in. But now also conversely, that obvious, there's an obvious business model there because again, the Dow Jones, the journal can charge per the minute, per the hour. So is the concept for that original online service, was it a regurgitation of just the print edition or were there more ambitious um, goals and ideas? Um, there, were, um, it, there were definitely more ambitious goals and ideas um, because, you know, especially when, in my view, um, you know, this was a, a, a wonderful sandbox to be able to experiment with stuff and be able to do things in a, in a different way. Um, you know, I used to have this argument with friends of mine at the New York Times, for example, where the New York Times had a rule that the, the print version of a New York Times story, when it went online, it was inviolable. You could not change that story once because the print version was the final version of that story. It was the version for history. Um, and I took the exact opposite approach from the beginning. I said, no, no, no. News happens all the time. And if, you know, if the journal publishes a story um, in the print paper that says President Clinton will do this today, and then President Clinton does it, we need to update the story. Um, it needs to be much more dynamic than than the sort of static. But these things now, um, you know, uh, another thing that that I um, planned on from the beginning was that it would be a 24 hour a day, 365 day a year service. It would be continuously updated. And um, the um, you know, that notion was um, uh, it, it seems so self-evident today. But in 1993 or 1994, nobody knew anything. Um, and so we were kind of making it up as, as we went along. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll digress and tell you a, a, a little story I've please, told, please. told this for years. When I was a student in, at Stanford in 1973, um, I took a class from a much beloved um, uh, uh, communication professor named Bill Rivers, which was essentially a speaker series. He would bring speakers in from, uh, you know, various media speakers, and we got like one unit for the class. Well, one day he invites in a guy named Joe Noland. Um, now, Joe Noland was then the publisher of the Oakland Tribune. And he must have been, I think he's way up in his 80s now, so he must have been in his 40s, early 40s or something. Um, and, um, and Joe Noland was sort of, 
how do I put this nicely? The students all assumed he was crazy. He was jumping around on the, you know, in front of the class, waving his arms and talking absolute nonsense. And the nonsense would be things like, in the future, you're going to be getting your newspaper off a TV screen. Mm. And remember, this is 1973. No one even knows the has ever heard the term personal computer. When and we were going, you're going to be getting news off of a, a newspaper on a screen. Well, what if you want to take it with you? You know, you oh, you'll have something you know attached to your TV so you can print it out. But no one's really going to want to do that. Well, you know, how are you going to publish this? How how often does it, you know, um, uh, you know, you publish it once a day, right? And because that's what you do with a newspaper. And Nolan was saying, no, you don't publish it once a day. It's always being published. And we said, well, what do you mean it's always being published? He'd say, well, you know, if news happens, it's reflected immediately. And we said, well, do you mean that if, um, you know, if if I come in and access my newspaper and you come in 10 minutes later that the newspaper might be different? And he said, yeah. And we all, all of us students after this performance said, this guy's out of his mind. <laughs> um, and, you know, flash forward 20 years when we were doing the, the planning for what became WSJ.com and every time some issue would come up about well, when are you going to publish? How's it going to, you know, we're going to publish all the time. You're going to what? And anytime any issue came up that I didn't have a ready answer for, I'd think back to that speech from Joe Nolan. And I said, well, Joe Nolan said it would be this way. So let's try it this way. Um, and, you know, a lot of those things, I, we, we thought he was out of his mind. He was 20 plus years ahead of his time. Um, he went on, by the way, to become a character actor. He had a small part in the Star Trek movie, uh, the one with the whales. Four, uh, yeah. And, um, and he's still around, uh, um, I believe he's still living in the East Bay. A few years ago, I got his email address and I sent him a, a note and I, you know, explained my role in the early days of online news. And I said, if you ever saw, you know, online news doing things, um, and and said to yourself, ah, oh, that's the way I thought it would it would happen back in 1973. I, I said, there's a reason for that. Um, there's a, a direct line from from the nonsense that we all assumed he was spewing um, to what we actually were able to do 20, 25 years later. Well, and he inspired you to do it as well. As well. So the. The online service um, that you're uh, creating a team to build, does it actually launch before the web goes mainstream and then everyone has to realize, oh, we got to do the web? What actually happened was um, turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Um, I think that the Dow Jones technical people um, had vastly underestimated the complexity of building an AOL-style dial-up online service, um, you know, um, from scratch. And so the project, the completion date for this uh, online service kept getting pushed back and back. And meanwhile, we were beginning to see, you know, the, the early days of the web, um, uh, the web beginning to take hold. And Neil had the, you know, the vision and the courage 
um, to say, you know what, we're, we've been spending, we've, we've already spent a year and a half in going in this, in this direction, but we need to be going in that direction. Um, in the parlance of the time, we felt like we were off building um, a really cool Betamax when the rest of the world was getting ready to go VHS. And, you know, kids go ask your grandparents what Betamax and VHS were. Um, but, um, but Neil really, um, and I give him all the credit in the world for this, he basically went to Dow Jones executives and, you know, and with support from, from the rest of us on the team, and he told them, we're doing this the wrong way. We need to stop what we're doing with a dial-up online service and move everything to the web. The web is the way of the future. We can move much faster and more nimbly on the web. Um, basically, throw out 80% of what we've already done, start over, but build this business on the web. And that was probably you know, late 1994, early 1995. Mm -hmm. And by the summer of 1995, we had um, uh, a prototype of WSJ.com up and running on the web and publicly available. We called it the Money and Investing Update, and it was it ran from early '95 to um, uh, to when we um, morphed it into the full-fledged Wall Street Journal online uh, in uh, spring of 1996. Okay, before we get to that, a few um, structural questions here. Uh, you, you, you've got to build a team, and and as you even said, it was like a, um, it was a bit of soul searching for you. Like, do I want to go off and do this thing? That's career suicide. Is this Siberia for me? So it, when you're when you're building the team and you're trying to put this together, are you uh, hiring people from outside the journal, or are you bringing people over? Like, what? How was it difficult to build the team because of that whole Siberia career suicide thing? It was the single thing that I am proudest of in that from that entire era was the team that I was able to build. I was able to bring in people who never would have gotten in the door of the journal, the traditional journal, um, and um, and some of them, many of them, surprising number, are still there today in very important jobs in the organization. Um, you you have to remember that at the time that that we were doing this there was no such thing as a digital journalist. And so um, we had to basically mint our own. And the way I went about it was, um, I didn't know what skills would be, you know, the, the entire skill set that would be necessary, but I went looking for people who had skills in one particular area that I knew would be useful um, and who had the intellectual curiosity and flexibility to learn what it was they didn't already know. So, you know, I knew that um, because we were planning to be continuously updated, uh, you know, I wanted people, some people who were familiar with, um, you know, the 24-hour the, the news cycle. So I, you know, went looking for people who had experience in all news radio, for example. Um, I knew that, uh, especially in the early days, um, news production, the actual getting of the of the content into the online service um, was going to be a production effort. So I went looking for people who had experience in organizing news production. Um, I knew that we'd be it would be an incredibly fast moving environment 
because we were going to be updating continuously. So I, I went looking for some people who had wire service experience. Uh, the common element was that everybody was interested in learning stuff they didn't already know. And it was incredibly wonderful and gratifying to see basically the staff taught each other digital journalism because, you know, the, the all news radio person didn't know anything about, um, about news production, but they wanted to learn. And the news production person didn't know anything about, you know, how a wire service journalist thought, but they were eager to learn. And out of that, um, that agglomeration of talents and skills and that desire to learn more, um, that's really what gave birth to this first generation of digital journalists. Um, so one thing that I do like to ask, uh, I'm not, I'm not asking you to remember the date it went live, but I always like to ask people because you know these things are down the memory hole now. And and actually, I didn't even make a note of what you called it. This, but the the thing that you launched on the web, and we're saying uh, summer of '94, I think you said. If I was there, if I was online that day. Um, or summer of 95, sorry. Uh, what would I have seen and, um, yeah, what would I have seen? You would have seen something called the Money and Investing Update, uh, which is actually, I think if you go to the Internet Archive, you can still pull up a couple, mm. um, um, which was essentially the, the analog or the digital analog, if that's not a contradiction in terms, to the third section of the journal, the Money and Markets section. Uh, it had a news summary on the homepage that linked to stories um, about business and finance. Um, it had some worldwide news. Um, it had markets, uh, stories about the markets, um, about business-related stuff. It was essentially a subsection of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and um, I can tell you exactly when it, when it went away. Um, the date is forever burnished. Um, I think it was April, um, I want to say April 29th, um, 1996, was the launch of the full, what we then called the Wall Street Journal Interactive Edition, which was extremely memorable. Um, uh, you know, we were early to the web. There was a lot of anticipation about, and people had already seen the money and investing update for um, eight or nine months, but this was the next big thing. This was the big thing on the internet. Um, and, um, and so there was a lot of anticipation. And we had arranged for one of my colleagues in, in Europe was gonna do a, a press conference and demonstration in Europe. And then we were gonna do one in New York. Um, and we had all this thing planned out. So um, I get in, uh, we were gonna launch it on a Monday. And I get in at about 10 o'clock Sunday morning, and the journal newsroom in New York is completely deserted. And um, and I knew that pretty soon people would start coming in and you know for launch and everything. And I announced to an empty newsroom, the Wall Street Journal Interactive Edition is now perpetually open for business. And I was very ceremonious about it, and I was very you know. From now on, the Wall Street Journal was always going to be online. There were always going to be journalists on duty. Perpetual. And, yeah. Pardon? Perpetual. Yeah. Yeah. Perpetual. And, um, and about 10 minutes later, um, our, um, the people uh, running the servers down in South Brunswick 
um, uh, called me and said, um, uh, Rich, just to give you a heads up, uh, we're going to, to prepare for the launch, we're going to um, recycle all of the servers. We're going to reboot everything. So, you know, it'll be about 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you can actually start moving copy to the servers. And I said, great. And they did this recycling of the servers and the entire damn system crashed. It's always the way. And it was down for about 12 hours. Um, now, the advantage is, though, I mean, I'm sure there were people looking for this or whatever. And, and obviously, you guys are anticipating it. But, you know, um, it's still in the days when you're disappointing a thousand people, not a billion, <laughs> maybe. We had – there was a lot of interest in what the journal was doing. We had press conferences set up. Um, the, the media, you know, there was European media wanted to see, uh, U.S. media. This was a really big deal at the time. And, um, and we were totally paralyzed. For t 10 to 12 hours, um, we could do nothing. And we're watching the clock and we're realizing that, you know, it's going to be um, 7 a.m. New York time was when the European press conference was supposed to happen. And we had no way of publishing. And um, so I called my wife and I said, I'm not coming home tonight. Um, please pack a bag, an overnight bag. And, you know, we sent a courier to my house uh, out in New Jersey to pick up this bag and bring it to the office. Finally, at about 11 o'clock at night, um, you know, the servers, we got some, got the servers back. And we worked like crazy all night trying to populate the pages. And, um, and uh, I don't know if we've ever publicly admitted this, but basically my colleague Phil Rebson, who was doing the European uh, uh, launch of WSJ.com, we called Phil and said, okay, we've been able to populate this page, this page, that page, and this page. So here's the path that you can take in your demo so that people won't hit error 404 messages. And so we basically, you know, he was showing off a Potemkin version of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and um, meanwhile, we kept furiously working and working. Um, finally, at about seven in the morning, uh, you know, Neil and I, uh, who had been, you know, working with the staff all night, um, went across the street to the World Trade Center where we had reserved rooms when we saw we weren't going uh, home that night. We had reserved rooms in the, the Marriott um, uh, or the Hilton International, whatever it was then, in the World Trade Center. Um, and we checked in at 7 a.m. And um, I tell people it's the world's most expensive shower because I, I had tried to get some sleep for an hour before our U.S. press conference. There was no way I was so wired. There was no way I was going to sleep. So I literally, all I did in that room was take a shower, shave, put my suit on, and walk back across the street to the journal office. Um, we then had um, our U.S. press conference, which was a total disaster because um, there were so many people hitting the journal website that Neil, you know, couldn't get the pages to load even though they had content because the servers were just overwhelmed with people who were, um, you know, wanted to see what we were doing. And it's probably even mostly text too, right? 
Uh, it was mostly text, although there were, there were some graphics too. The journal itself was pretty text heavy back then. Um, but there were, you know, the, the traffic on that first day was overwhelming. Um, and, you know, which I think was a good thing, it was a mark of how excited people were to see um, that, you know, an organization as professionally respected as the journal was embracing the internet, um, which in itself was news at that point, because the internet was still sort of viewed as the wild, the wild um, and woolly, uh, you know, uh, internet. And, and you still had people saying, you know, no one will ever depend on the internet for reliable information. And here was the journal, this respected organization, embracing the internet and saying, yes, they will. And moreover, um, not only that, uh, not only will they, uh, will people be willing to, um, to trust information they get from the internet, but even more revolutionary for the time, he said people would pay for it. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks. Thanks.